Good evening. Um, when I contacted Emily Ellis about the possibility of a diversity-related series for Book Sandwiched In, I never imagined um, how popular they would be. Um, one of the first talks we had this year was Sam Venable uh, looking at Hillbilly Elegy, and there were 200 people, at least, in this room. <laughs> Imagine that. Okay, so what I will do and what follows is kind of give some opening remarks on Kindred, um, a kind of overview of the text for those of you who may not have had a chance to um, read it, and then I'll open up a discussion to our panelists um, and then to you again, our, our audience. Kindred is probably the most um, popular text that I teach. There is something about it that is very accessible. It's a quick read, though the brutality of the era is nothing to sneeze at. You may have had to put it down a couple of times, like, whew, that was a whole lot. <laughs> Let me back off from this for a little bit. <laughs> uh, published in 1979, Kindred very much still feels like something that might have been written today. Did you notice that when you were reading? It feels very current. Of course, the narrative is set in 1976, and there is some commentary that's going on there, right? Why didn't she elect to, to put it in 1978? Of course, 1976 was the bicentennial year, and there was a whole lot of pomp and circumstance going on here in the country um, to celebrate those 200 years of American independence and also this notion of American progress as well. So she's already setting up this idea of thinking through how can I trouble how we remember this particular time. And it's not in the way that one would normally think. She's not making a critique necessarily, or at first, or only, or solely about American society, but also uh, this fact that when she was in college, and she went to college as an older student, she overheard a young man basically say that his parents, He's a black young man. His parents did not do enough. They did not have a politics that was radical enough. And so Octavia Butler said, mm-hmm, okay, let me see what happens if I send somebody back to the era of slavery and see how they deal with that, yeah. right? You, you see what you would have done if you were in that kind of circumstance. Now, of course, Dana within the text does not hold that kind of position. She's educated when she's traversing these time periods. She does uh, look at historical texts to kind of guide her and so forth. But she still wanted to do that, to, to present this um, kind of story in this way to demonstrate to black Americans who may feel that things should have been more radical during the civil rights movement, not as nonviolent as it was, that actually, during your time, if you uh, would have had to deal with the things that your far forefathers and foremothers had to deal with, you might not have been as strong as they. So one of the questions that I often ask in my classes is why no one is talking about slavery anymore. Of course, we're talking about it tonight. Of course, my classes do. But we, when we think about our society, why is it that in polite conversation, it's not one of those subjects that you want to broach? Right? Perhaps not at your girlfriend's brunch on Saturday do you want to get into that subject because of all of the horrors associated with it. We go to movies on the subject and we watch Underground on WGN, but we usually do not dwell on the afterlives of these historical representations. Uh, why is it that when we speak of the topic of slavery, we don't speak as if it affects our present moment? 
Um, should there be shame and guilt or anger and sadness or blame and vengeance associated with this historical sin? How do we reckon with uh, one of the nation's most brutally violent and dehumanizing founding institutions? And the question becomes, is history past? Is history past? Clearly from our remarks so far, I don't think so. Octavia Butler didn't think so. Perhaps some of you don't think so, while others are kind of on the fence. And others still in this room may, may think that we must move on from the past and never look back. Is history past? Kindred as a genre is considered to be a neo-slave narrative. And when I say it's a neo-slave narrative, I mean that it is a contemporary text that reinvents the content of the tradi traditional slave narrative. So if you're thinking about something like Frederick Douglass's narrative, if you're thinking about something like Solomon Northrup's 12 Years a Slave, or Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, all of those kinds of traditional slave narratives were used as propaganda for the abolitionist cause, mainly in the 19th century. In the post-1965 period, or the post-Civil Rights era, a lot of black authors have taken up the genre of neo-slave narratives to think about how it is that the past informs the, the present. And that is not to say that we are living under slavery proper at this moment, that we can see some of the roots, we can see some of the hints of that social structure today. And that's a kind of controversial thing to say, right? Don't throw tomatoes at me. Um, and we can see that in some of the ways that we relate to one another, maybe our <laughs> distrust of one another, the stereotypes that we tend to believe about one another, and so forth. In Kindred, there is some very compelling time traveling that happens that propels the action forward. <laughs> and because Octavia Butler is known for her science fiction. If you look on the back of your book, it says that Kindred is a sci-fi novel. Mm -hmm. But with science fiction, the whole purpose is to play around with science and technology. And we don't have an apparatus. There's no closet that she goes into by choice and then transports her. I don't think she would have picked this Sarah if she was gonna time travel. So we don't have an apparatus, we don't have this technological way, we don't really have an explanation other than to say that there is some kind of force that pulls her back, maybe we call it an ancestral force, that pulls her back into this time period. And it's so odd that it seems to be that her chore is to save this forebear, a white forebear, from passing away so that she can ensure her own family's line and that she exists, right? That seems to be her foremost purpose. And perhaps some folks have pulled away, have, have peeled away some of those layers and are thinking about what was Dana's true purpose when she went back? And I'll let the conversation go the way that it goes without giving my opinions about that right now. Okay. So um, as I've already kind of covered, Kendrick is a look at what happens when Dana is pulled back into slavery. And it is very interesting that she goes back to save this forebear who has caused so much harm, so much brutality, to ensure 
it's even hard to say, even though I know you've read it and I've taught it so many times, to ensure that he basically fathers her line. And that is not through a relationship that is consensual, but one that is through rape, um, through, the the, through the threat of rape um, and uh, brutality as well. In December of last year, I had the great fortune to go to the Octavia Butler Papers in San Marino, California. And I was there for two weeks. And if you've ever done archival research on a particular person, it can be stunning um, in how you feel as if you know the person or that you're there with them because their very personal details are, are there. And Octavia Butler passed away in 2006. She passed away very suddenly. She was only 58 years old. Um, and she had a stroke um, and fell and hit her head and passed away. So she did not have the opportunity to kind of go through and sift through her papers to ensure that only the things that she wanted to be there were there. Um, and I would just go through the finding aid. So when you go to the archives, there's a finding aid. Hers is like hundreds of page long, pages long because it's just boxes upon boxes of things. And I just wanted to know, I had all these questions about her method, her process of writing and so forth. But one of the things that I found out about Tavia Butler is that she kept everything. That had to be everything. It was so much. That must have been everything. She had, oh my gosh, she, she had a card made from construction paper that she made for her mom for Mother's Day when she was 10 years old. That was still in her files. She had, you know, everything, things, prescriptions, um, let, you know, all of her diary entries, her letters, it, it had to be all of her versions of everything she's ever written. From 13 years old forward, multiple versions of Kindred. Um, and it, it was it's impressive to kind of be there and see her process, particularly with, with Kindred, because as I said, she was kind of, the thought came into her head based off of that one young man. But the fact that she very much was just kind of I don't know, going back and forth with how she wanted to craft this novel was also very interesting. So one of the things that I found in the archive, and we can talk about this later perhaps, is that the original Kevin was a black man. How would that have changed the course of this novel? Would this novel have been five pages? Because he would not have been able to deal with the of the era, and he would have just struck back because he was, you know, as a man wanting to protect his wife and you know, his family, would he have gone that way? And I think that's part of the reason why, and she says this in some interviews too, that she needed to make it such that Dana was going to have a longer kind of experience, that there was going to be some access into those spaces that an enslaved person would not have been able to get into, and Kevin offered that kind of um, access for her as someone who was educated, of course, a white man, um, and so forth. And so that's why she did what she did. There's all kinds of other ways that she um, kind of shifted around uh, the narrative um, as well, but the end result was always supposed to be the way that it ended. Okay. One of the other things that I found from the archive, and this will be the last thing from the archive that I mentioned, is that there were disagreements with her publisher over the name of the book. Kindred 
it seems perfect, right? You think it'll be like, okay, that doesn't sound like what this book is about. Her publisher, I mean, and these were pointed disagreements, and you know, this is going through snail mail all this time. People are kind of upset about this. They wanted the novel to be called Dana. No, it's not about Dana. It's about Dana, but it's not about Dana. And that's the the very politics that she was trying to critique. It's not about the individual. It's about family and community and building uh, these kinds of relations with each other throughout time and so forth. And so at one point she just said, it's not going to be Dana. Here are five names. I can't remember all of them. Here are five names for you to choose from. And she said that she preferred Kindred, and that's what they um, they went with. So it's not just about Dana. Oh, that was terrible, Dana. Have you read Dana? What? Who's Dana? <laughs> um, all right. So I, I have a couple of things that I just want to kind of read from. And if you have your books, of course, you can follow along. I thought there were three important moments in the text that I could bring up. I'm sure you all have. There's so many important moments. Uh, but three that really stick out to me um, as pivotal moments within the text that I hope we can talk more about. Now, of course, when she's first transported to the era of the slave trade, she is um, disoriented. She's shocked by what's happening. Um, but she's also someone who, within herself, she already knows that if somebody is in, facing harm, she wants to help them in some ways. That's just part of her character. Um, but it took a specific moment, if you go to page 36, it takes a specific moment where she is hit from all sides by the brutality of the era. And it's, it's that moment, this moment where she feels that things have really gotten real for her. And this is the scene where she basically sees Alice and her father has um, gone to visit with the family and he has found out and beaten in front of her. And this, the way she writes this is kind of like a, it's not sensory excess, but there's a way that she's playing with the senses here that makes it feel so real because of the way that she's able to play on these kinds of sensory impressions. So if you're thinking about the visual, what you're hearing, what you're smelling, um, and so forth, I think that's why she gets it. And this is the moment where I think it becomes really real for Dana, the stakes of this project that she's involved in. She doesn't know what it's called, what it means, what the end uh, game is for all of this. But this is the moment toward the bottom of 36. I could literally smell his sweat, hear every ragged breath, every cry, every cut of the lip. I could see his body jerking convulsing, straining against the rope as his screaming went on and on. My stomach heaved, and I had to force myself to stay where I was and keep quiet. Why didn't they stop? Please, master the men, beds. For God's sake, master, please. I shut my eyes and tensed my muscles against an urge to vomit. I had seen people beaten on television and in the movies. I had seen the two red blood substitute streaks across their backs and heard their well-rehearsed screams. But I hadn't lain nearby and smelled their sweat or heard them pleading and praying, shamed before their families and themselves. I was probably less prepared for the reality than a child crying not far from me. I think that's one of those passages that's written beautifully, right? Xavier Butler goes to this kind of 
I mentioned how the novel feels accessible. You really get into it. And then she has these very kind of lyrical ways that she was writing uh, the material that draws you in as a reader. Whenever I read this text, and I read it so many times, I write about this in my book um, too, when you read the text, it's almost as if you are literally going along the way with Dana. Um, and it's almost as if you can see what she's seeing or, or maybe even hear what she's hearing just based on the way um, that Octavia Butler is able to slip back and forth into that very kind of direct language and also that which feels more lyrical, emotional, and also passionate as well. There's another moment that I would like to uh, jump over to, page 90, um, 96. That's where it starts. And this is the moment where Kevin um, has a disagreement with Dana. And it's because of the way the two of them are traversing this time period. And if you remember with the text, Dana is kind of struggling, right? She's struggling to bite her, her tongue, to not speak back. If we think about the possibility of someone coming to a, up to us right now and hitting us or our child or our husband or wife, you will want to say something back, right? Um, if somebody's treating you in a particular kind of way, and she's have, she has to learn that that's not the way of this time period, um, and, and things are affecting her in a much different way than they're affecting um, Kevin. So around 96 through page 101, there's this back and forth between the two of them. And what I think is interesting is that Kevin makes this comment about how slavery isn't as bad as he thought it would be. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. He redeems himself, of course. You know, you, you find that out later, but at, at that point, you're like, they're breaking up. <laughs> when they get back for good, this is not going to work out. But he basically, and, and he basically says in 97, wouldn't it be cool if we could see how the West was built? And it's so interesting how he's traversing it as if he's been given a gift to travel. Look at this. This is great. Meanwhile, she's negotiating, Dana's negotiating the very real possibility, as she goes through this, of being beaten, of possibly being killed, harmed in some way, of viewing this kind of thing happen to people that she realizes very early on are her own forebears. Um, and he's having this kind of light moment, and he seems to be enjoying it. I think it's a very pivotal moment in the text, right, where it kind of reveals Kevin's blind spots. We know he's married to a black woman. We know that his politics are not the politics of the 19th century, but it reveals a blind spot about uh, his politics. Um, and some people may just say that, what do they say? Women are from Venus, men are from wherever. <laughs> right, maybe it was a gender thing. I'm not sure. So I think it's a very important moment in the text where you do get, between this couple, a kind of interaction that you would not have gotten if Kevin were indeed a black man. I don't think a black man going back to that time period would be thinking about how adventurous it was, right? It was not this fun uh, field trip that they were on, and they were, you know, wow, we're gonna go tomorrow. It's not that kind of thing. It's more for her about how do I survive this place? And he doesn't get that until he's stuck in that era for five years, and he takes on the abolitionist cause. 
Um, and he goes through a lot, sees a whole lot of pain and death um, and, and so forth about that era. And he returns a very changed man. Okay, He has to go through that process. Um, I would say that that's one thing I would have maybe liked to have seen within the text, like a little short three, four-page chapter of what Kevin was doing. Mm-hmm. Although I do feel it's complete, the curiosity, you know, curiosity um, is, gets to me every once in a while. I wonder what that looked like for him because he explains what happens, um, but he's also he's changed and he's also uh, very short when he returns too. He's, he's changed. And in good ways where it seems like his eyes are open to what happened, but in maybe not so great ways in just how short he is with Dana when he returns. And finally, there's this moment on page 140 that goes back to how we should talk about slavery in our society and thinking about the import of history, why it is we don't talk about certain things and so forth. And this is a moment where Dana is basically trying to write a letter to Kevin. And of course, Rufus initially says that he will mail those letters for her. We know that something else happens. He um, doesn't want to do that. His father, surprisingly, is the one who's actually a man of his word and and really wants these letters to be mailed. But at this moment, I, I, I think Rufus kind of articulates a lot of what you hear today when people start talking about civil rights movement or slavery or even going a little bit, bit back further about thinking about, uh, well, we've gone past that point. We have the Civil Rights Acts of 64, 65, and 68. Why don't we suddenly just talk about this fact of slavery? It's over. Okay. 140 at the top. I'll read a bit here. I took my denim bag from where I had hidden it under his bed and sat down at his desk to write the letter using one of his large sheets of paper with my pen. I didn't want to bother dipping the quill and still pen on his desk into ink. Dear Kevin, I'm back, and I want to go north, too. Let me see your pen when you're finished, said Rufus. All right. I went on writing, feeling myself strangely near tears. It was as though I was really talking to Kevin. I began to believe I would see him again. Let me see the other things you brought back with you, said Rufus. I swung the bag bag onto his bed. You can look, I said, and continued writing. Not until I was finished with the letter did did I look up to see what he was doing. He was reading my book. Here's the pen, I said casually, and I waited to grab the book the moment he put it down. But instead of putting it down, he ignored the pen and looked up at me. This is the biggest lot of abolitionist trash I ever saw. No, it isn't, I said. That book wasn't even written until a century after slavery was abolished. Then why the hell are they still complaining about it? Okay. So it's very interesting that that retort, that response to people talking about slavery, writing about it in their history books, bringing it up when we think about how we relate to one another in our society today is often kind of responded to in that very same kind of way. If it's over, why are you still talking about it? Why are you complaining about it? Um, I, I think you know that gets at that question: Is history past? And I would love to hear what you all have to say. Your responses to this text, right? The fact that this was the selected text for this book sandwich in uh, event. 
How do you imagine a place of slavery in our discussions about American history and our contemporary life? So that's all I have for my prepared remarks. I want to um, ask that our, each of our panelists take a few minutes to discuss what they thought were some important takeaways um, from the novel, um, and then we'll open it up to hearing what you all have to say about your response to the novel as well. Where I came from was um, my dad's mother died on his fourth birthday. And um, she was a black woman, but she was light enough that she appeared white. And uh, when my dad was young, and sometimes the family would be going on a trip, she would have to lay in the back seat of the car, and they'd have to cover her because they didn't want the police to stop and think that my grandfather was with a white woman. Um, she died because she had a medical emergency, uh, ectoptic pregnancy, and when my grandfather took her to the doctor, they thought it was a white woman with a black man, so they wouldn't help her, and so he drove all around different places of San Antonio, uh, Welder, uh, Gonzales, Texas, and he couldn't find a, a doctor to treat her, and she ended up bleeding to death. And uh, when I was old enough to, to really understand the story, you know, slavery was called a, a peculiar institution. And I think this book uh, illustrates it. Kindred, to me, there was this connection, a love-hate relationship between Dana and Rufus. Um, once she realized kind of that she um, was transported back into time, usually for um, a life-altering event for Rufus where she had to save him to keep her lineage going, and um, they kind of realized that, and, and there was this connection. And so when I think of uh, my grandmother's situation, there was a reason that she was light enough to pass uh, or to be mistaken for a white woman because of this peculiar institution where black and white uh, commingled and that in 1947, uh, you know, years after slavery was abolished, uh, black people were still facing uh, the the ramifications of slavery, you know, they were freed, but didn't really have the rights. A lot of them had to be sharecroppers, which really was slavery without being called slavery. And then, uh, you know, some of them tried to migrate and still faced the same problems. And then you still have this, um, you know, black-white thing. And so that's kind of what I took from Kindred is, you know, we're all kind of intertwined, and we, we haven't really dealt with with slavery in this peculiar institution and how, you know, several hundred years later, there's still different forms of slavery in our, our criminal justice system, for one, and, um, and subtle racism um, is still, you know, very much prevalent. And so I think until we can address it, and, you know, it's not really... Um, addressed well or, or discussed in, in history or in school or anything. And I think it because um, it was such a peculiar uh, relationship that it's kind of hard to explain, but until we can kind of unpack it and really um, address the brutal and awful things um, that happened. You know, I, I sometimes had discussions with my children about slavery, 
And I think it hit home to them when I said, you know, if we were slaves, I probably wouldn't even really know you because, you know, once you got to a certain age, you probably would have been sold um, off to another uh, farm. I may not have even known where uh, you went. I could have been sold somewhere, but um, families were not preserved, and so it was very unlikely that, you know, I would know my children when they were in their 20s or, or you know, know what happened to them. Um, you know, marriages, you know, you could be with one person and then they are traded for some reason and, you know, you're paired with somebody else, uh, you know, for the sake of breeding. And so um, until I think we can fully address that, we'll, we'll, um, we still have a lot of work to be done. So for obvious reasons, I don't have as much of a, like a, any sort of personal trauma that is connected to the narrative of kindred. But I do have maybe two different entryways into this story. Um, one is as a white male, uh, because in this story, my kind, so to speak, is the, the villain, the perpetrator of all the crimes in this tragedy. Um, and then also as a, a teacher, because I think this is very much a story about literacy as well. Uh, Dana and Kevin are both uh, writers and both teach writing uh, and reading when they're in the slave era. Um, there's a white male, I've, I've come as tracking the spectrum of enemies and allies that uh, Octavia Butler creates throughout the story. Um, the three obvious ones are, are the two Wylands, Tom and Rufus, and then there's Kevin as well. Uh, I, I noticed a fourth uh, white male who kind of plays prominently in the story later on, which is Evan Fowler. Um, he uh, basically serves the purpose to to whip and beat the slaves when they're out in the fields. And I placed him as maybe the, the most uh, grand evil because he's just blindly malicious. He has no consciousness of um, empathy for, for people of color. He's just kind of fulfilling this mechanical function to, to perpetrate violence against them. And then you have Tom Wyland, who's not not a sympathetic character, and he's often malicious towards his slaves, but he every once in a while will will take some sort of empathy with them, however small. Um, Rufus, early on, is sympathetic often because of his relationship with Dana, uh, but he is still so malicious as well. And and then you have Kevin, who's sort of a quantum leap away from these characters. Um, He is sympathetic towards Dana because of their relationship and the time period he's grown up in. Um, And he is not intentionally malicious, but he's still unconsciously um, like implicit and, and, and complicit in the system of white supremacy, right? And Octavia Butler is often encouraging us subtly to draw parallels between Rufus and Kevin. There's a moment where she catches Rufus's accent in Kevin's accent. Um, she notices that his facial expressions have started to mimic Rufus's facial expressions. And then uh, there's there are two moments with Rufus and Kevin where Dana is forced to like do scribe work for them, like they're both using her in this mechanical way. And so he may see himself as this ultimate ally of black culture, but uh, he can't really be a true one based on the way that Octavia Butler has constructed the narrative. So I feel like she is asking us as readers a question of like, um, is true allyship possible? What are the limits of allyship? Um, Can a white male ever be a true supporter of women, people of color, other marginalized groups 
if everybody is a product of their own culture. Uh, she talks about um, Tom, Wy- uh, Tom Wyland being a, a man of his time, uh, or a, a Kevin says that quote, I believe. And she mentions that Rufus, once he grows up, is a part of the system, and he's not entirely free himself. Um, so as white men, are we just fulfilling a socialized, socially programmed role to, to reinforce the, the system of white supremacy um, and are these things not true for every man and every white person? So is true allyship possible was one question that I took out of the book and would be interesting to discuss. Um, from the perspective of an educator, this is a story about literacy. Um, they're both teachers. They both uh, try to uh, instill literacy, reading, and writing skills in the, the slaves that they meet when they are in that era. Um, and Dana tries to educate Rufus as well, not just in terms of literal reading and writing skills, but she wants to instill some sort of a social consciousness in him, teaching him like not to refer to black people with disparaging language, for example, when he's very young. Um, and that is all for naught, it seems like, by the end of the book. He becomes just almost as cruelly racist as his father. And so one question is, like, can you teach social consciousness? Um, is, it, is it possible or like, is it cost-effective or worthwhile to spend time trying to teach social consciousness. And then I was also thinking about Dana as an educated woman, uh, who is a lot of her experience with the slave era is filtered through her education in, in university and her understanding of slave era history in a way that the, the people who are actually living it just don't, they don't have the context. Um, and she is in a way, traumatized by her education of it. She mentions that when she's kind of going through the mental Rolodex in her head of like all the things she knows about slavery, she um, it recoils from it and says that I almost wish I hadn't read about it. Uh, it's a book that maybe intends to traumatize us in a way. Uh, when Dana comes back, she doesn't come back whole. She loses an arm. So um, in what way are we traumatized by reading about this experience? What arm do we lose on our way back? And then my last thing, I guess, is that there's this issue of language with Dana when she goes back in time. Um, her education and her the way that she speaks is a stumbling block for her often because she's stuck in this linguistic no-man's land. Um, her skin color um, dooms her to, to slavery with other people of color, but the way that she speaks makes her an outcast among her own race. Language is just so racially coded, at least the way that it is developed at, at this point in time. And so Kindred is asking us whether or not, I guess whether or not that is the case. Is language racially coded? Should language be racially coded? And it's just a central part of our identity, the way that we speak and the words that we have to define the world. So what happens when whites have a monopoly on formal education for such a long time? And so entirely new linguistic patterns develop in the absence of that. Um, the, the implications are tough to reconcile. Like I'm thinking about this as an English teacher at a school that is predominantly black. Like if I teach a black student to talk and write like Scott Fitzgerald? Am I doing some sort of cultural genocide, like taking part of their cultural identity? Or is failing to do that, is neglecting to give them that formal education just a perpetuation of the slave era subjugation? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, But Dana seems to think that education is inherently a 
subversive act. When she starts to teach the, the young slave Nigel how to read and write, she says there's nothing more subversive than that. Um, so I think the education and literacy is an interesting topic of discussion here, too. Yeah, and um, intriguing conversations and very deep thoughts there and um, some certainly perspectives that I had not considered. Mm-hmm. When I was reading through it, I thought it was great. And I thought maybe the title might be I Said Nothing. Right? Because I think about an African American female, and we have such strong personalities, stereotypically, we think. And she said that so many times, right? When she came to these different places in her life, I said nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? So I could sit there and spend a lot of time on that because that was a whole other dynamic for me. But when I looked at this book in its totality, particularly uh, in relation to the work that I do now at the Bad Culture Exchange Center, Beck is the place where African-American history and culture is preserved. And I'm, I'm really a strong advocate for our community, particularly the traumatic um, circumstances that we often find ourselves in as a marginalized community uh, and the challenges that we face, that if we could visit history, really revisit history in such a way as to um, look at history, again, not condemning, not judging, not feeling bad, not having any sort of uh, condemnation attached to it, but really looking at it and studying it and understanding it so that we can then be better today, so we can learn some things, right? Um, But from an African-American history and culture perspective, what you see are so many dynamics and facets of the culture, right? So when you see many African-Americans today, if you look at slavery, and you look at many of those dynamics and facets are generational, and they come up generations. Yeah. So, for example, we talk about culture. The, the overseer in the, in the field, in many instances, the overseer would have been another slave, mm-hmm. right? And so there is this self-preservation thing where you're always trying to preserve your role so that you can continue to keep your role. And that means I've got to put you down in order for me to be up, right? So we still see that. People have this sense of, in order for me to stay where I am, I have to keep putting you down. I have to keep beating you down. Mm -hmm. Because if I don't, then I'm going to lose my status. I'm going to lose my role. So there's a whole idea of self-preservation. And I also think that there were all of these other um, reflections. Uh, I wanted to talk about the women. Oftentimes when we tell African American history, the women are sort of in the background. Um, the Alice's of the world and um, Sarah. There are so many facets to those women and yet they become sort of the background. Even when you look at the house servants or the Negro servants, even the ladies that were upstairs in the room, they're sort of the background of a story, right? But they really are a big part of the story and in that I was able to see all these different African-American women, all these different facets, the relationship of those African-Americans that were uh, the field workers, if you will, those that were in the house, those were upstairs, those were educated, those were reading. So we have all of these facets. Well, that's no different than today, right? So we have all of these cultural dynamics that happened in slavery, that slavery breeded a lot of those relationships and almost tormented those relationships that we had with each other. So then we find those same situations today interacting with one another relative to the color differences of the skin, the size, all kinds, the the hair quality, you know, the texture of the hair Mm -hmm. and all kinds of things like that, which I think really help us have that conversation today with, okay, so what was all of that going on? And what was um, 
the intention of all of that? Was it intentional um, that they created those dynamics and those relationships among people so that we would keep sort of this conflict always going on within themselves? Because absolutely, if we're strengthened together, right? If we come together and we're all on the same court, then then things are gonna things are gonna be different. But I also thought a very interesting moment for me, or one of the aha moments that I was trying to find it in the book, somewhere Rufus says, um, she starts to talk about history. I think it may have been at the point with the coin to prove to him that she was from another period and that she knew some of these things in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would say something to him, and he said, well, then you should know everything. He said, so if you lived all that, why don't you know all this other stuff? And she said, yeah, but you lived... At this period, 18, 18, 19 is when it starts. She says, well, you lived all these years before. Do you know all of that stuff? Well, for me, that was an aha moment because we do have access to information. We do have access to our history, to our culture, to all these things, but we don't take advantage of that. So just like he didn't take advantage of it in 18, 19, the periods before and learning and growing and being able to say it, we do the same things today. We have access now with the Internet to all of this information. I don't know what all happened in all those periods and all those dynamics. But that's a learning moment or an aha moment. Well, why don't we know? Why aren't we learning? Why aren't we seeing that? Um, and so I thought that was a very interesting moment. But I also wanted to um, sort of close or, or wrap all of this up with um, the idea that I always think when I look at things, it's always your own personal perspective. I know that you said, what was this story all about? Was it not about Dana? But I do think it's a self-reflection story. And I think in some way, Dana was trying to discover who she was. She had always in her life um, tried to figure her life out relative to her parents who were now gone, this aunt who had raised her, this relationship that she had with this man. All these things had happened in her life. And now here she goes back, well, on a search and a quest and a find. Who am I? Which is what I think Roots is all about, which is what I think generational things are all about. We're always searching for who we are, who were our ancestors, and how did that shape who we became or who we are or who we will be. So always think genealogy is important. Roots are important, particularly as we celebrate the 40-year anniversary of Roots this year and what um, Alex Haley tried to do in terms of self-identification for himself. As he went back, Dana was doing some of those very same things. In essence, she was actually discovering who she was as a person, and I think that's what history does mm-hmm. in our roots. But we celebrate certain presidents who would have been slaveholding or who right. have predated this time period that Octavia Butler is teaching in. So there's certain stories, certain histories that we want to tell our, our children. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of condemnation. It's really difficult when you have to look back and see someone that looks like you that was the uh, inflicting brutality. And I was um, thinking about at the back, we get lots of archives and people bring things. And there was a lady who called, a white lady from Upper East Tennessee, and she says, I have some artifacts. My great-grandmother has passed away. It's taken us years to clean out the attic or years to clean out the house. And she says... And, and you could just tell by her conversation over the phone, she was very uncomfortable, right? And she said, I didn't know if you might want these, but we would drive down from Upper East Tennessee to Knoxville to the Bad Culture Exchange Center. If you th-. And I said, listen, I don't know what you have, and it doesn't matter. We want them, right? Mm-hmm. So she walks in, and she's totally uncomfortable um, to share with me the artifacts that she has that was in her great-grandmother's house in Upper East Tennessee. And included in the box... Um, 
were postcards her family had mailed back and forth each other, Christmas cards and things. And of course, it had the uh, black faces, it had the derogatory language, it had all this stuff that was part of the postcard with these friendly messages, how are you doing, as though there was nothing on the front of that card whatsoever. But these were her family members and these were her ancestors. And I said to her, it's history, right? And we're not looking at it to judge, to condemn, we have to learn. And we have to grow. And I know that's difficult for you. So I think it's difficult to talk about history. I think it's difficult, especially when you recognize that's my personal history of my family or whomever that was inflicting this. How do I share that without feeling some kind of way that I need to apologize for something for my family and so forth and so on? But history is the facts, right? And it's all about what happened so that we can learn from them and we can grow from them. And I think the biggest challenge, aside from the brutality of looking at and reading history, is the whole condemnation. Who wants to be condemned? And so we go away from that. There are two really great short quotes that Octavia Butler provides us with that I think speak to the point you're making. Um, There's one where she says, uh, see how easily slaves are made, question mark. And then another, she says, slavery was a long, slow process of dulling. Uh, so the idea that this was people's normal everyday reality, they just kind of fall into this apathy about it, uh, mm-hmm. that it, it's hard to get uh, passionately angry, have that righteous indignation when that is the water you're swimming in, right? So Octavia Butler's kind of asking us, like, what are the normalized forms of injustice that we mm-hmm. are ignoring and that people mm-hmm. in 150 years will judge us for mm-hmm. because we're not noticing them? That's good. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.